The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've titled this morning's message, Responding to a Tyrannical Government. Now, I guess you could say this would be another message in our COVID-19 series that we were doing. You know, just as we thought, or at least I did, that the COVID crisis was over, just as people started showing their faces again, uh, the government started making up variants. And now... And now the fear campaign starts all over again, and they're just pushing back. I have noticed that people are not not responding this time like they did the first. I think we are hopefully waking up. But if you're paying attention to what is happening in the country under the Biden administration, it's really disheartening. I mean, the rapid decay of this country. You know, there is a crisis on our southern border. And it's, you know, people think, well, it's the Mexicans coming. No, there's people from over 100 countries coming through that southern border, many of them criminals, okay? Countries are letting out their jails and, you know, go to America. They'll take care of you. When these people get in the country, they're busing them or flying them to various countries and just dropping them off. The illegals. Huh? Very, I'm sorry, various, thank you, various states and dropping them off. Um, Children are basically stacked on top of one another in cages down there. It is terrible. But the worst part is there's a lot of child trafficking going on, a lot of child molestation going on down there. And the Biden administration is just ignoring it. They don't even want to go there. They're afraid to go there because the news cameras will follow them and then people will know what's happening. So they don't even want to go down there. I'm sure you're aware that inflation is getting out of control. The gas prices, prices just keep rising. And it's not just gas, it's everything else with it. I had some cement work done last week, and the truck, the cement truck guy was talking to me, and he goes, you got in right on time. He goes, our prices are going up 35% next week. Everything is just going up. On top of that, crime is on the rise. And in a lot of the places, like out in California, someone comes in the store, if they start stealing stuff, they can't even call the cops. Unless they steal over $1,000 worth of stuff, you can't even call the cops. They're not going to come. They don't care. Violence is up, murder is up, all the while they're crying, defund the police. After 20 years and several trillion dollars, we finally pulled out of Afghanistan, and within a week, the Taliban has taken over. You know, so many Americans lost their lives, and so many were mutilated for what? For what? And if you think that 9-11 was caused by Middle Eastern terrorists, you really need to do some research. Okay? You really do. That was a false flag. Now, in a Homeland Security bulletin issued on August 13th, 2021 at 2 p.m., I have the bulletin in the notes if you want to read it. Okay? But you can go to their website, Homeland Security, and you can read this bulletin they, they issued. But uh, NBC Nightly News put it out this way, and here's the deal. Potential terror threats. Here's the threats that this country is facing. Opposition to COVID measures. What is that? 
I don't want to wear a mask. Oh, you're a domestic terrorist. I don't want a vaccine. You're a domestic terrorist. You're speaking against COVID? Is this crazy or what? This is a Homeland Security Bulletin. These are now domestic terrorists. Look what else. Claims of election fraud. You say anything about election not being you know, genuine and true and there's some falsified. Oh, you're a domestic terrorist. Belief, Trump can be reinstated. Domestic terrorist. I'm a domestic terrorist, okay? I oppose COVID measures, okay? I claim election fraud. I believe Trump will be back. I am a domestic terrorist as far as Homeland Security goes. Now, 9-11 anniversary and religious holidays... They think because of 9-11, it's, you know, it's the 20th year, something's going to happen. I, I, I don't even understand all that nonsense that they're doing there. But it seems to me like anyone who questions the government is a terrorist. You just question them, you're a terrorist. Christians that refuse the vaccine because it has fetal tissue in it, along with many other things that we don't even know what's in there, you're a domestic terrorist. No, I just don't want the vaccine. Why? I've had one. I had Guillain-Barre syndrome from a vaccine. I don't want another one. Thank you. Now, listen, I got good news for you because I I heard from a lot of different people that their job is mandating them to get the jab. Well, I got papers on religious exemption. If you need that, email me and I'll email you some religious exemption papers. Uh, But here's some good news. There's some places where you can go and apply for a job because they're not mandating vaccines. The White House, the CDC, the FDA, the WHO, Pfizer. You can work for Pfizer, you don't need a vaccine. Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Last month, the CEO of Pfizer was going to Israel. They wouldn't let him go. He doesn't have the vaccine. The CEO of Pfizer, people, this should tell us something, okay? It should tell us something. And the governors around this country, many of them have been telling churches they can't meet because of COVID-19. They just can't meet. Some in California just recently started meeting again. Now they're shutting them down again. Our government is becoming more and more anti-Christian. Okay? And you know why they don't want us meeting? Because when we get together, there's strength in numbers. We are encouraged. We support each other. We share information. They don't want that happening. You know, in Australia right now, they're not allowed out of their houses without a mask on. And if you run into your neighbor at the store, they say, don't talk to them. They don't want them communicating. Because if you isolate people, you can control them much better. And it's interesting to me that, you know, Australia, the Netherlands, uh, UK... They're pushing these mandates so hard on people. These are the places that have already taken their guns away from them. So they got a lot more leverage there, so to speak. Okay? You know, last week, a Portland church was meeting in the park. They were assaulted by Antifa. Police did nothing. That's okay. You know who Antifa is? Antifa, if you remember Nazi Germany, the brown shirts. Antifa, they're just the brown shirts of the Democratic Party. So what do we as Christians do? How do we respond to a tyrannical government that's trying to take 
all of our liberties away. A government that is power mad and out of control. What do we do when they censor us? I mean, on social media, you put something they don't like, they take it up. What do you do? Let me tell you what you should do about social media. Move to Gab. Okay, Gab is a social media site where you can talk freely. You say what you want. It's run by Christians. What do we do when the state mandates our businesses to cover life-destroying abortions in our employee health care? What do we do? Last week, Andrew Torba, who is the founder of Gab, he posted this. He said, if you are a Christian conservative in the United States of America, you are treated worse and have less freedom than the Taliban. That's true. You know, Twitter, they kick Trump off, right? The Taliban's on there, though. They can say whatever they want. Well, that's okay. They have no problem with them. I think it should be clear that our government really doesn't like Christians. They just don't. And things are getting much worse, it seems like. So what do we do? How do we deal with what's happening in our country? Well, I think that we need a boldness to speak out and to stand up. The further they can push us, the happier they are. If people don't respond, they just keep coming after us. Well, I was reading last week in the text of Acts 4, how Yeshua's disciples dealt with a tyrannical government. So I thought, let's look at this text this week, and hopefully it will help us in the coming weeks and months to just understand that we need the boldness that the Lord can provide, and we need to stand up and we need to speak out. So much immorality, so much ungodliness being pushed down our throats as normal. Well, let's back up a little. Let's go to Acts 2. Acts 2, we have Pentecost. Everybody's familiar with that, right? The church is born. The new covenant arrives. Well, because of the audio-visual effect of Pentecost, a crowd gathered around, giving Peter an opportunity to preach the church's first sermon. So he preaches the resurrection of Christ. And chapter 3 opens with Peter and John. They're on their way to the temple to pray. And on their way, they run into a lame man that's begging at the temple gate. So Peter says, hey, we don't have silver and gold, but what such as I have give I thee in the name of Yeshua the Christ, stand up and walk. And this guy jumps up. He hasn't walked for a long, long time. He jumps up. He's leaping and shouting and praising God. And this draws a crowd. And Peter preaches the second sermon. Well, while he's preaching the sermon, the temple police show up and arrest him and put him in jail. So that brings us to Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The church has only been alive for a couple of days and already they, they're running into persecution. And it's just not going to get any better from here. It just keeps getting worse. From Acts 4 until the end of the chapter, or end of the book, which is 28 chapters, we have three chapters that don't include persecution. Everything they did, they were persecuted when they did it. The government was against them. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon him. Now, the captain of the temple guard was a highly placed member of the high priest family, and he was charged with temple security. It was the duty of the Levites, who are the priests, 
to guard the gates of the temple. In order to prevent the unclean from entering there, they made sure the Gentiles didn't go where they weren't allowed to. And to them, the duties of the temple police were entrusted under the command of the official known as, in the New Testament, known as the captain of the temple. In Jewish writings, he's known as the man of the temple mount, according to Josephus. He says, now it says they were greatly annoyed at these people. <laughs> this is kind of funny. This one word in the Greek. It's diaponeo. It's a strong word and it means thoroughly pained. This group of men wanted to stop Peter and John. They're in mental anguish here. And their anguish wasn't because of sorrow. Their indignation is based on wrath because people were doing what they didn't want them to do. They were violating what they had set up. So they're upset. In other words, they're not getting their way. So they're greatly annoyed. Our text says it was because they're proclaiming Yeshua and the resurrection from the dead. They're upset because the majority of them are Sadducees. And Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see. The whole system was in danger by this preaching of the resurrection of Christ. Now, they recognize that the resurrection from the dead might be being taught in the synagogues by the Pharisees, but not if they could help it in the temple. And it was they who had the overall responsibility for the temple. Verse 3 says, And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So jailing was probably right in the temple himself. They just grabbed them, and their system of justice was pretty swift. And arraignment was going to be the next day. So they grab them, they lock these men up. I like verse 4. It says, And many of those who had heard the word believed. Peter's preaching and there's people coming to faith in Christ. He's getting arrested. They're putting him in jail because of it, but good things are happening. And they're not keeping quiet. They're speaking out. And people are coming to Christ. God is bringing people through the Word of God. The number of men came to about 5,000. Verses 5-7 through say, The next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? By do this, they're talking about healing the lame man. Okay? How did you do this? Now, the group described here is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest Jewish authority and court. It was made up of around 70 men taken from among the rulers, who would be the chief priests, the elders, which were lay people, and the scribes mainly, but not entirely, teachers of the Pharisees. And they included a number of close relatives of the high priest. Annas was the high priest according to Jewish law, but he had been replaced as high priest by Caiaphas under Roman law in about AD 14. Many of the people still considered Annas to be the high priest, and Luke may simply here be citing this popular designation. And when they had set them in the midst, the Sanhedrin usually assembled in the precincts of the temple called the Hall of Hewn Stone. They would sit in a semicircle, and the president of the Sanhedrin sat across from the semicircle, facing them, and then the prisoners were put in the middle. So they're in the midst, they're sitting there in the midst, and... They asked Peter and John, by what power or what name did you do this? So their question is one of authority. 
Yeshua was often challenged in the same way. As the highest religious body in the land, this group felt they should authorize all teaching and all ministry in their midst. In other words, anything goes on here, we got to know about it. We got to control it. Who's doing this? If it's done in the precincts of the temple, they want control over it. Verse 8 through 10 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now think about the fact that this is the group that had put Yeshua to death two months earlier, the Sanhedrin. But Peter and John, they're not intimidated. And their boldness must have been alarming, and it was. We'll look at that in a second. To the Sanhedrin. The whole setting of the story centers on the healing of this lame beggar at the temple. And the word at the end of verse 9 here that says healed, this man has been healed, this is from the Greek word sozo. That word sound familiar? That Greek word familiar to some of you? The word for save, for salvation, healed, all right? And by introducing sozo, which can refer to rescue from both physical dangers and afflictions and spiritual danger of eternal death, Luke initiates a word play that he's going to complete when he gets to verse 12. This story's physical healing is simply an illustration and a demonstration of the greater spiritual healing. Acts 4.10 says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So Peter tells the Sanhedrin that this great miracle was done in the name of Yeshua the Christ, the Nazarene, the man, he says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Remember, this is the high Jewish court. This is the one that had condemned Christ to death. And Peter tells them, whom you crucified. You're responsible for that. You know, this is such a contrast to the cringing disciple that was afraid of the little maid when she asked him, hey, aren't you one of them? I don't know him! And he's, you know, three times and he's cursing. I don't know who that guy is. And now he's in front of the Sanhedrin, not some little maid girl, and he's just as bold as he can be. What's the difference? Well, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's bold, he's fearless, and he preaches the truth. He's not afraid of them, in the least bit. Now, the Jewish religious leaders thought they walked with God. I mean, that's the whole thing, okay? This is, you know, these are Jews. The Jews know God. This is the Jewish leadership. But Peter boldly informs them otherwise. He said, you killed him. God raised him from the dead. In other words, you're at odds with the God who you claim to worship. The tomb is empty. He's alive. And there was nothing they could say because they knew it was true. The tomb was empty and they couldn't find a body anywhere. All right? Verse 11, he says, This Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, Peter is citing here Psalms 118.22 with a slight addition. You know what he adds here? By you. He's making it real specific. All right? Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by the builders. He says, by you, the builders. You're the builders who rejected him. 
You should have known a good stone when you saw one. You're the builders. This is referring to the religious leaders. Those who should have understood, known the Scriptures. Yet due to their spinning God's Word to create a religion of self-dependence and legalism, they rejected Yeshua. Now God has placed Christ as the cornerstone of this living temple. And now anyone who would come to God for salvation has to build on the rock of Christ. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, coming back to the word saved. Eternal life, eternal forgiveness are only available through Yeshua. He's not one of the ways. He is the only way. Okay? I know people who say, I believe this and this, and I also believe Yeshua or Jesus, they would say. And I'm like, he's just not one of those trophies on your shelf. He's either it or he's nothing. All right? Now, the question had been in what name the layman had be healed. And this reply states that it is only in the name of Yeshua that mankind can be healed. Salvation here is from the Greek word soteria. Now, this would have a messianic ring to the listeners, especially connected with Psalm 118. In the scrolls of Qumran, salvation and God's salvation are designations of the Messiah. So this is true in other intertestamental Jewish literature also, and it appears later in rabbinic writings. In their view, Messiah was to be God's means of salvation. He was to be salvation. Thus, Peter's words are a further claim of Yeshua's Messiahship. Link with the salvation which would bring men into the everlasting kingdom. Furthermore, the name Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation. So salvation is closely paralleled with the name of Yeshua in every sense you want to look at. And these leaders would have known or should have known from the Scripture that the God of Israel is the only Savior. All right? Oh, man. Well, something happened to this text. Isaiah 44, 7, I think it is. No, 40, 43, 11. <clears throat> Isaiah 43, 11. I am God. I'm the Savior. The only Savior. All right? It says. And they're like, no. Wait a minute now. He's saying Yeshua is the Savior. Peter claims the role for Yeshua that God claims because He is God. He is Yahweh. And Peter was, in effect, saying, if you don't turn to Yeshua, you'll be damned. There's no other way to become saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. In other words, they're not Pharisees, they're not religious leaders. They recognized that they had been with Yeshua. The response of Peter and John to this trial is really encouraging. Like I said, they're not intimidated at all by this high court. They had boldness. The Greek word for boldness here is paresia, and it means free and fearless confidence. Boldness, assurance. How many of you have been in a courtroom? How many of you had to go stand before a judge? It can be intimidating, right? Why? Because he has incredible power. He can do whatever he wants. If he doesn't like what you're saying, ah, you know, boom, slams his gavel down and they take you off to jail, you know? Just that easy. 
He can fine you. He can jail you. He can make your life miserable because whatever he says goes. Now, you can appeal. Wait a while. I hope somebody else has a different opinion. But it's intimidating to be before someone with that kind of power. Well, this is the Sanhedrin. They had that power. So most sane people, sane people, are intimidated by the judge. And they seek to say whatever they can that won't offend the judge. But not Peter. He confronts the court with their sin using their own scriptures. You know, we fear a judge who can do maybe at the most throw us in jail for a while. But Peter is fearless in the face of physical torture. They could have had him whipped 39 times. He doesn't care. The wisdom of Peter caused the Sanhedrin, I love this, to be astonished. It says they were astonished. This is the Greek word, Thrumadzo, and it means to be in wonder, to be amazed. They're like, who the heck is these? Who are these guys that they're just in our face like this? They are so bold. I mean, they're used to people cringing before them, not speaking out like this. This is something they're not used to. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. You guys get out of here. We got to talk about this. What are we going to do with these guys? Saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them and speak no more to anyone in this name. This is something really remarkable here. How do you describe the connection between what they say in verse 16 and what they say in verse 17? Look at 16. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. Okay? To all the ever, all of Jerusalem knows they healed this man. We can't deny it. They know what happened. So what do we do? Well, let's warn them and make them speak no more about this. <laughs> it's evident. You know what happened. You know they healed somebody. But all you got to say is, don't talk about it. As crazy as that sounds, that's what happens. Okay? They just don't, don't. We can't do anything about it. We know what happened. They're just blind to it because it's interfering with their program. So. Just don't do it anymore. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now remember, they're speaking to the highest religious authorities of the day. It was a fearful thing to get dragged before the Sanhedrin court. The same leaders who had just put Yeshua to death on a cross. Who was to say they wouldn't do the same thing to these disciples? Now, if you were given that command by the Sanhedrin, by the courts, what would you say? I think most of us would probably just say nothing, right? Just keep your mouth shut. We may have thought, we'll keep quiet now. When we get out of here, we'll do what we want. Let's pacify the court. Let's not upset them. Peter didn't feel that way. He denies the court. And he basically says this. This is cool. Watch what he says. Whether it's right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than God, you judge. Oh, you're a court. You're the Sanhedrin. So judge this. Should we listen to you or God? I can't wait to hear your judgment. What is it? Who do we listen to? Who do we go to? Tell me. How do they answer that? Well, if they told the apostles to listen to God, then they couldn't tell them not to preach anymore. If they said, listen to us, They knew they'd be implying that God's commands were not to be obeyed. So they were stuck. They didn't know what in the world to do. 
It's a question they couldn't answer without admitting they were not on God's side. So he got them. He says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They'd seen Yeshua heal this man through them, through his power. And they can't stop speaking about it. They want to tell people. People saw it. They want an explanation. And so they're preaching the gospel. Such a declaration of loyalty to God in the face of human opposition has been seen in the history of the church. We saw it in the Reformation. Martin Luther, before the Diet of Worms, stood up boldly. The Scott reformer John Knox, of whom it was said, he feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. They didn't care. I mean, their lives were on, at stake. They didn't care because they believed in what they were doing. You know, we all face situations like this in our lives <clears throat> if we seek to live out biblical Christianity in a secular society. All right? Because society doesn't... I'm sure you've run into family, friends who are angry with you, and you're like, what did I do? Well, you believe something that makes them angry. Okay? They don't like what you believe. They don't like what you stand for. That happens. What is happening here is Peter and John are promising civil disobedience. And when an earthly authority's command is in conflict with God's command, we're to be obedient to God every time. Remember when King Darius of Babylon made a decree that no one could pray to anyone but the king himself. And Daniel heard about the decree. And what did Daniel do? He prayed to God. <laughs> he didn't listen to him. All right? So, well, you say, yeah, but he got thrown in the lion's den. Yeah, but he had a good night's sleep there. And then the next day, the king pulled him out, threw the people who made the decree, and then the lions ate them. The lions weren't hungry when Daniel was there, but the next day they were really hungry, okay? Because they couldn't eat Daniel. So, crazy. You know, there's been times in Israel's history when disobedience to the government was very important. In Exodus 1.6, we read that the king of Egypt commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill every male child that was born. They didn't, they didn't do it, okay? They lied to the king. They said, oh, these Hebrew women, they're strong. They have babies before we even get there, you know? Because they weren't going to They refused. Because it was wrong. So Peter and John defiantly refuse to obey civil authorities of the Sanhedrin. They flat out tell them, we're not going to obey you. So what do the leaders do? Did they beat them? Did they throw them in prison? No, they were afraid to do that, okay, because of the people. So they threatened them. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them. They couldn't figure out a way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. They wanted to punish him. But they were afraid of the people. I think our government would be afraid of the people too if the people stuck together. And if the people rose up and said, no, listen, you're supposed to work for us. Okay? We're tired of these stupid mandate you're putting on us and we're not going to do it anymore but until we do raise up and stand against it i think they're just going to keep coming up with new things how do you think you'd respond in a situation like peter would you keep your mouth shut would you openly defy the authorities i think what's sad is we've never so far been commanded to keep our mouth shut and yet too often we do 
We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to proclaim the God and who we love because this world certainly needs a Savior. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. You know, I can just picture Peter and John. They're excited about this because they said, hey, we, got, we were preaching because we healed, the Lord healed this lame man, so we got to preach, and while we're preaching, we got arrested, and then we got to preach to the Sanhedrin. And they commanded us, don't do this anymore. Shut up, you're not allowed to preach anymore. Well, these threats coming as they did from the highest civil authority had the force of law. Unlike these governor's mandates, they don't have the force of law. Okay, this had the force of law. Obedience to Christ is going to be costly. they, they got to understand this from now on. And, but Peter and John didn't show up to the fellow Christians in a state of mental depression. They came back rejoicing. They had preached the resurrection, resurrected Yeshua to the very Sanhedrin that had crucified him. It says they went to their friends. I think we see here that Peter and John were committed to community. They had a corporate mindset. Their first instinct was to get with the other believers and share with them what had happened and to join together in prayer. I really think this is one of the reasons they're trying to shut the churches down and use COVID as an excuse. We don't want you together. We don't want you talking. We don't want you strengthening each other. We don't want you encouraging each other. Keep people separated. 424. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. The first response of this group of believers when they heard this was to turn to God in prayer. <laughs> Is prayer your first response in difficult situations? You know, often we run through so many scenarios of how can we deal with this before we think, oh yeah, prayer. And I think a lot of Christians, they just, they're not, because they've prayed and they didn't get an answer, they're like, what's the point? Why should I pray? God doesn't even answer. Well, maybe you don't really understand what prayer is all about. This is a definition of prayer that changed my prayer life. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence. So every time you pray, you're saying, God, I need you. Every time you don't pray, you're saying, step back and watch. I got this, God. Boy, that's a scary place to be, isn't it? But that's our life, you know? I got this, God, I don't need you. No, we're dependent upon Him for everything. So we cry out to Him with our needs. Every need, all our needs. We couldn't take another breath without Him. So they told the court they weren't going to obey them. And all they knew, this is going to get ugly. So they go to God in prayer. And notice how they prayed. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. I think this is interesting. First of all, they don't cry out, Help! Protect us from the Sanhedrin. Smite the Sanhedrin. They begin their prayer by affirming God as a sovereign creator of all things. You're getting their thinking right here. Okay, God, we know who you are. You're sovereign. You're the sovereign Lord. This is powerful. Okay? Normally the word Lord is translated from kurios. Right? Lord. It's not kurios here. It's despotes. You know what word we get from despotes? Despot. All right? A despot. This is not a common title for God in Scripture. 
This divine title emphasizes the complete ownership that God exercises over His servants. Sovereign despot. That sounds kind of harsh to us almost, right? But this is a common ascription in Jewish prayers, according to Josephus. The use of this word, I think, shows us that the apostles saw themselves as God's slaves. You are the sovereign despot. You say, how does that help? Well, if you see yourself as a slave, and when you're facing persecution and things aren't going your way, uh, slaves don't usually get wonderful treatment, right? Slaves don't have rights. You know, the owner could command the slave to do some unreasonable things without giving an excuse, and they're supposed to carry out the command even if it meant their death. If they died carrying it out, too bad, you're a slave. The slave had to obey without question, without complaint. And these Christians, I think, are acknowledging, God, you're the master, we're the slaves, and I think this is their way of saying, we'll submit to your sovereign will, whatever it is, God. You're the sovereign Lord of the universe, we bow before you. What a great place to be, huh? Now, the prophets taught this theme of God as the creator of the heavens. Over and over we see this through the prophets. But so did the Apostle Paul. Paul said this in Colossians. He said, for by him all things were created. In heavens, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, things created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The church had found great comfort in the fact that the God who they prayed to was the Creator of heaven and earth. He's the sovereign God who is totally in control. They know that if God created everything in the earth, the sea, the heaven, then these elders, these priests, this Sanhedrin are his property and he can do with them whatever he pleases. Confessing the truth about God's relationship to our circumstances, I think brings encouragement, especially when we are aware of danger and feel out of control. It's nice to know God's in control. He's the creator. He created it. He controls it. These early Christians recognized that God had even predicted the very opposition they face because they quoted from the second psalm here to support it. They had clearly been doing what Christians ought to do under pressure. They went to the Scriptures. And they found in the second psalm the prediction of the actual opposition they were facing. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, when they heard Psalm 2, they said to themselves, that's exactly what's happening. Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the others, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they set themselves against the Lord. We saw it happen right here in the city. It's not surprising. It's not unexpected. It's exactly what God said would happen. And they found great encouragement in the fact that this event wasn't beyond God's control. This opposition they were facing had been anticipated. No human event gets out of hand as far as God's control. Notice verse 28. What does this teach? To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. What's that teach? That teaches there were no Arminians in the early church. They all knew God was sovereign in everything. All right, these, they've gathered together, what? To do just what you planned, God. In other words, I can rest in this. You're in control of it. The Greek word translated here, predestined, is 
proorizo. And it's from this word that we get the English word horizon. This Greek word could be literally translated pre-horizon. We know the horizons, that great boundary between earth and sky. And the Greek word horizo means to establish boundaries and to set boundaries, to draw lines, to establish the limits, to determine what will be. And so to do that ahead of time in eternity past is what predestined means. God predestines all things, all things, even the evil deed of crucifying His anointed one, Yeshua. You know, a lot of people today, they freak out, oh, God doesn't, God does no part in evil. Was crucifying Christ evil? Um, Trump came to the church. (laughs) Appreciate you coming, brother. It's always good to hear from you. (laughs) God predestines all things everything even the evil and like i said people just have such a problem with that you know they just they can't believe if it's if something is bad to them then god wasn't involved because god only does what's good to them okay and we talked about this before but you go to the book of job and job says god gave and god took away and all the charismatics go no god doesn't take away he only gives and like I said, I heard the preacher next door was saying, Job lost his mind when he said that. He was delirious. He, was, he didn't know what he was saying. It was wrong. I was like, well, the next verses say, in all this, Job did not sin or cause God with wrong. And I'm thinking, well, something's wrong here, you know. And then you get to the end of the book of Job, and Job comes against, God comes against Job's friends, and he said, you have not spoken of me that which is right as my servant Job has. And I'm like, so Job didn't sin when he says God took it away. He knew God was in control. People, why can't we grasp that? If you understand who God is and how big he is, he can do what he wants to do, and he controls all things. You say, well, I don't understand why. I don't understand a lot of things, okay? But he's God and we're not. And so we need to just try to learn what we can from the Scriptures, but... You can't deny the truth that He controls everything. And if you believe, as most most people do, that evil events occur outside of God's sovereign will, that's just fearful. That just causes no comfort at all because everything that happens in your life is a disaster and you're like, everything's out of control. And people say, well, God doesn't really control it. He just, He could stop it if He wanted to, but He didn't. Well, okay, that's better. He could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it. So uh, it just gets, I know. We just need to stick with what the Scriptures teach, okay? God preordained this. Now, whether you like that or not, that's not the issue, okay? God mightily and sovereignly ordains everything that happens. He orders it all according to his wise purpose. If wicked men persecute his church, God predestined it to occur for His purpose and glory, and we can submit to Yahweh in it knowing that He's in control. I mean, you look at all these churches around the world that are, you know, suffering now, being persecuted, being put to death. They're serving God. You think, well, they're serving God. God should just miraculously protect them. He doesn't. Why? I don't know when you get to heaven. Ask Him. Okay? 
I don't know why. But where do you think people see the reality of God more? In the American church where people go to church and, oh, is he done yet? Okay, let's go. Or the church over in another country when they go at risk of their life. And some of them are dying. They must really believe in something to show up there. It doesn't cost us anything to come to church in this country. But for them, it does. And God is put on display. He ordains everything for His purpose. Now, after five verses of proclaiming the glories and the sovereignty of God, we have two verses of petition. Now, this is a great model for prayer, people. You know, spend time recognizing who God is, praising Him for who He is, and then, okay, by the way, God, I'd like to ask something of you here. Too often we rush into His presence with a grocery list. Gimme, 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 gimme. Like I said, start with giving thanks, you know, for everything you can think of. And once you're done, you're like, hmm, what did I need to ask you for? No, never mind. (laughs) I think I'm pretty blessed. Thanks, God. Things are cool. Verse 29 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. All right. The Greek word again for boldness here, paresia, it means fear, free and fearless confidence, boldness, assurance. This is the second of the three times in this text that this Greek word is used. This text is about boldness. We've already seen they had boldness. They're, they're confronting the Sanhedrin right in front of them. You killed them. We're not going to obey you. They understood, now they had boldness, they're praying for more. Why? Because they understood that persecution is going to come the more they resist this authority. And they understand that persecution often causes people to shut up, to be quiet. Look what John said. Yet the fear of the Jew, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Oh, we're not going to talk because we're afraid. Let's not say that. We'll get in trouble. So people back down. So they pray for boldness. And confidence. This is an admission of the fallibility of Christians. It's interesting. Paul basically prayed this same prayer in Ephesians 6.19. He says, and also he's telling them to pray, and also pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul's in prison here, right? If you're in prison, what's your prayer request? God, get me out of here. Give me a better mattress. Give me some better food. A better cellmate. Give me something. Help me out, Lord. <laughs> this is what's funny. Paul's boldness got him in jail. And so now he's in jail and he's asking for more boldness so he can be even bolder and proclaim the gospel. In other words, under the persecution, I don't want to back down. Give me boldness. People, when is the last time that we prayed for boldness that we'd be able to share the truth of the gospel? With our world. Too often we prejudge people. Uh, They'll never believe this. Oh, they'll never buy this. That's so wrong. We have no clue whose life God's going to work in. But they need to hear. And they can't hear without a preacher. Somebody's got to share the gospel with people. So when is the last time you prayed for boldness? Did you open your mouth? They didn't ask to be delivered from persecution. They didn't even ask 
God to judge their opponents. I think I'd have prayed for that at least. No, they just they wanted boldness. Because they're more concerned about their mission than their lives. I think we can learn something from this. I think we need to live with the consciousness that God has put us here as ambassadors for a reason. We're image bearers of Christ. We're not here just to have jobs, raise families. and No, we're here to serve Christ. That's why we're here. We need to see more prayer like this. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where it seems like every request focuses on health problems? I think if that's the main focus of prayer time, it reveals that we're too focused on ourselves and not enough on the kingdom of God. It's not about your aches and pains. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, they threatened us. We know they can whip us. We know they could take our lives. Just give us boldness. They didn't pray, God, make sure nobody hurts us. They understood it was going to cost them. They give us boldness to step it up and to accomplish our mission. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think the shaking here is, is God's symbolic answer to their prayer. In other words, he's saying to them, this is in a figurative way. He's saying, you're going to shake Jerusalem and the world with the message that you're taking out. And it's interesting that less than 40 years later, the city was shaken literally to the ground. All right? I mean, the priests lost all authority. The whole system was wiped out. And they carried the gospel. And they continue to do it. And their prayer is answered here. It says they spoke the word of God with boldness. They prayed. Their prayer was answered. They're going around boldly proclaiming the word. This boldness was a gift that they received from God through prayer. It wasn't something they worked up in themselves. They were dependent upon God to give them the power to do what he commanded them to do. Just give us boldness, Lord. Believers, we need to trust in God's sovereignty. And we need to pray for the boldness to speak His truth to the world in which we live. In our neighborhoods. On our jobs. In our schools. We need boldness to be the image bearers and the truth tellers. Because our culture continues to move very rapidly toward ungodliness and unrighteousness. You know, you want to know what an oxymoron is? It's our justice system. It's anything but just. I mean, people are out there, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and they're destroying buildings, they're burning, they're killing. They're fine. They're peaceful protests. A bunch of people go walk into the Capitol taking pictures. They're terrorists, and they're still in prison. You speak against... The domestic, the Democratic Party, and you're an enemy and you'll lock you up. No justice. Ungodliness is just flourishing and it's being pushed. We people are Yahweh's representatives and we need to be a light in the midst of the darkness. You know, the darker our culture gets, the brighter our light would shine. And we need to really confront the ungodliness with the truth of God's word. For example, we need to tell them, listen, unborn babies are human. 
They're not tissue that can be destroyed. They're a human being created in the image of God. And to stop that is murder. But we don't want to say that. Because, you know, everyone today thinks that's just okay. You know, we need to be bold enough to stand up and say, you know what? There's only two genders. A man and a woman, and that's it. You know who really, I just realized, I was reading something this morning, and it helped me realize this. You know who's really making out on this transgender thing? Big Pharma. You know why? If they become transgender, they have to take medication the rest of their life. A lot of medication. So they're making out big. I mean, they're pushing this like crazy. But there's only two genders. I don't care what anybody says. And if you don't believe that, go buy a bull and try to get some milk. Or go get a rooster and see how many eggs you're going to get. Oh, gender does matter, huh? Yes, it does. And let me tell you another thing we need to speak up on. Marriage, people, is between a man and a woman. You can't have a marriage between two men and two women. That's not a marriage. It may be a social union, a social contract that you work out with this other person. It's not a marriage. They don't want to hear that. We need to proclaim to people that all lives matter. You know, if you have to put a race in front of it, this race matters, then you're racist. All lives, every human being matters, even the preborn. We need to pray for boldness to be a light in the midst of this darkness. But I'll tell you, people, we, we really were going to need boldness because when you start saying some of these things, you're going to be attacked. They're going to hate you. What is wrong with you? How come you say that? I'm just trying to line up with Scripture. That's my go-to thing. I said, well, it's not really me saying it. This is what God says. Let me show you the Word of God. They don't really want that. But people, our culture needs a light. They need us more than ever right now. They're floundering. They're hurting. And we have answers. We just need the boldness to proclaim them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. As we read this text in Acts 4 and we see Peter and John and just the the incredible boldness, Lord, they, they showed no fear. Even the Sanhedrin was marveling that they were so bold. They didn't fear for their lives, Lord. They just thought of the mission of serving you, being a witness, being a testimony. God, our world needs us right now. It's hurting seems to be coming apart at the seams. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to help our culture through the gospel, through the power of the gospel, Lord. May we be open and bold to share with people. People need truth. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Lord, grant us boldness, we pray. Amen.